You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're celebrating, it's America's Talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist on a rare New Year's Day episode. Usually we tape on a Monday night and release on a Thursday morning today. It's all happening on New Year's Day, getting your 2024 starting off the right way. We've got three fantastic inside the huddles for you from 2023. Carrie-Anne Otano, Marcus Shields, and David Alden. More about each of those as we get through the show. A little bit of sports talk. It's New Year's Day. You know Weston and I are going to be glued to the screen for the Rose Bowl. I have high hopes for Michigan. And please, if there is a God, let my Wolverines beat Weston's Alabama Crimson Tide. Otherwise, it's going to be a very long year and a very long episode when we all come back in later this month in January. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. On February 2nd of 2023, that was episode 352. For those of you who are counting, we went inside the huddle with Carrie-Anne Otania, the vice president of engagement at Opera Delaware. Talked to her about getting shushed in her own opera house. After performing at many of the opera houses on her professional bucket list, Carrie Antonio transitioned into administration, beginning with a role on the admin team of Opera Neo, then as marketing manager of Opera Memphis, and now, of course, as VP of Engagement for Opera Delaware. I met Carrie Ann at the Opera America conference in May 2023 in Pittsburgh after the show was taped. And she is so high energy. It's like you're talking to her and you're like, Carrie Ann, I wondered if you could just be a little more excited about this business. Take a listen. Carrie Ann's joining us right now from Wilmington, Delaware. Hi, Carrie Ann. How are you? Hi, I'm so good. You have such a great voice for this. Hmm, thank you. Oh, you're talking to <laughs> <Thank> Ashley. You. <laughs> I've also you been too. told you I too. have a face for radio. So yep. thank you. <laughs> so, all right, Carrie Ann, let's talk about this. I, I found you through your social media presence. First, you're like, we, we follow enough of the right opera people on the gram that we, I, I ran into you and I was like, oh, she's fun. Oh, she knows what she's talking about. Oh, she works for opera. This is so exciting. So when you look in your socials, when we're looking on YouTube, Facebook, whatever, uh, you radiate this people personness and you have this like legitimate energy and love for opera. So if you need to convince somebody to get into opera, this art form is, is worth just being a part of and being a fan of, what do you tell them? Mm. Yeah, it. I think that the most important thing about opera and the arts in general is that human connection. I think the reason that people hesitate to buy into opera is because we tell them, hey, come see this opera because we're doing La Traviata. Come see this opera because it's Verdi. Come see this opera because I think that's the wrong approach. I think the correct approach is to say, come see this opera because it's someone that you know right? Like mm. I want, I want you to meet these singers. I want you to hear their perspective. Come see this opera because it's, it's an experience you're never going to forget, 
with our upcoming production of La Traviata, we are doing uh, a poker tournament where the first place winner gets a thousand dollars and it's a mixer for, uh, for young professionals and for our board. Right. So it's an experience that you're never going to forget. It's an experience that you only are going to get with this company, this one night, right. Or come and see this because it's something that you already understand. So our approach for this La Traviata is to say, um, Hey, if you like, uh, Moulin Rouge, if you like Pretty Woman, um, it is the same story as those through the lens of like Bridgerton, through the lens of Mount <laughs> Abbey, right? It's a period piece, but you understand the story. You understand what it's like to be uh, Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman and to be swept up in this romance and to maybe have to walk away from it. You are going to understand and empathize with these characters. And that's what people want. They want to be welcomed into this. They want to, um, they want to understand that they're going to understand that they're not going to feel stupid in the space, that they're not right. going to be shushed, that they're not going to be made to feel like they don't belong, that they're going to be looked up and down, like they're wearing the wrong thing. That, that is the power that we have to welcome people to opera. And I take that responsibility very seriously. So when you say VP of engagement, you really are talking about bringing audiences into the theater, trying to find new audiences. Audiences, yes, but but artists first. My first passion was for artists and will always be for artists. My first loyalty will always be to artists. Um, I sang professionally for 10 years and part of the transition was taking responsibility for the people that I care the most about um, who are my fellow singers. Um, so part of it is, yes, I want people to experience opera in a new way. I want people to experience opera in a way that makes them feel included uh, and makes us have invaluable conversations, right? And grow as a community. But I also want us to experience opera that is meaningful for the artists who are making the opera and it's not plug and play. Um, I want artists, opera singers um, to be a major force in the collaboration and deciding the programming that we're doing, deciding the stories that we're telling so that you can be ambassadors out in the community to relate to people. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of all of that. It's kind of, if I can be honest with you, my whole personality is opera and like <laughs> opera and talking about opera because I love it. And I love singers. So tell us about Opera Delaware. What is the brand of Opera Delaware? And clearly you're the face of the brand. So if I were to just say, I, without even knowing anything about Opera Delaware, I would say it's young, it's vaguely ethnic. <laughs> you are. <laughs> 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 ambiguous. <Absolutely> yes, ambiguous. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so I've never been to Delaware. I, I mean, t tell us like what maybe the company is known for and where you'd like to see it go, what direction like see it going. Yeah, absolutely. So Opera Delaware is the Delaware is the first state. Fun fact. Fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> and Opera Delaware is the 11th oldest opera country, opera company in the country. Okay, hmm. so I'm obsessed with this because when Opera Delaware was founded in 1945, it was founded by a bunch of local nerdos who were like, I want to sing Tosca, right? <laughs> it was just a bunch of local people living in this community who were like, I want to make art with my friends. And they had some coin and they had a space, right? And they were like, opera matters to me. That's so dope. What a dope reason to start an opera company, period. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Opera for All was like the idea of Opera Delaware when it started. And by that, they meant anyone can make opera. Anyone can be a part of that process. Mwah. I love it. 
someone should chef's turn kiss. it into yeah, this a is an audio format movie. so you have to go chef's kiss chef's kiss you know what i mean like it's so sweet now um as the company has evolved over time we bring in talent from around the world right we we cultivate talent we work with people who live in this area who live in philly who live in dc right so that they can be part of our community. But we also bring in talent from, from all over the place. So when we say opera for all now, what we're talking about is who we're serving with the opera, right? It used to be opera for all is like, we can all make it. And that was a that was a very cute start mm. for us. Um, that was but cute. Now, that was cute. <laughs> but now it's, who are we gonna serve? We're gonna serve everyone with these stories. Um, and so part of that opera for all, uh, initiative, part of that opera for all message that we have. We just announced today um, a new initiative. We partnered with, uh, we got sponsorship from m and Bank and uh, opera for all is a new initiative where any of the local nonprofits, any of the local nonprofits here in Delaware can uh, get a specialty page on our website where they can access tickets for $10 off for 15 percent off or for absolutely free for anyone who serves in their organization. Oh, wow. and I'm tell you why. Because I don't support giving away free opera tickets because I think it undervalues and it makes it seem like opera doesn't doesn't have a value. Mm-hmm. Right. We are giving we are using complimentary tickets because when you claim these complimentary tickets, I send you personally from me, your friend Carrie Ann. Friendly <laughs> Vice President of Engagement. I send you an email saying, hey, here's this survey. I would love to know your previous experience with opera. I would love to know what your expectations are based on what you've seen in the media. What do you think is going to be? What do you think your night is going to be? What are you expecting? Right? Where are you starting from? So that when you come to the opera, I know already how to cultivate that experience for you. Mm. I, you and, know, no, I want to hear the rest of that, but just surveys to me. Are intrusive, and I'm trying to figure out what is your Carrie Ann Otonio beautiful oh, survey technique. So charming. Listen, you're gonna have to see it because I, I honestly think that everybody just wants to be heard. Mm-hmm. I honestly think that. I, I case think that, in point, this show, right? <laughs> everybody wants everybody wants to have a voice, and that is true for our audiences, whether there are existing audiences or new audiences, and so giving people the opportunity. If you speak to them from sincerity and not, you know, on a sliding scale and this is going, it needs that personal touch. Right. When we follow up with the the interview after the show, that's an in-person, we're going to sit down and me and you are going to talk, right? Mm. So that we can figure out why it is that 80 to 90% of first-time opera goers don't come back. Do you know that statistic? 80 to 90% do mm. not come back of people who go to symphony, opera, ballet, like that is a staggering statistic. And I think it's our fault. I think it's because we don't make them feel like they belong in the space. We don't make them feel like they're smart enough to be with us. We don't make them feel, um, you know, we did an opera in the fall and a, a woman was giving me dirty looks for, for laughing in the audience. Mm. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know who I am? (laughs) Who works here? Who works here? Right. Would you, Um, did you have like some identifier that you worked there? Yeah. Oh yeah. So I had like a big button on that says, ask me about the opera. (laughs) I I share the story very 
openly because this this was really really important for me um this this woman was a few rows in front of me she kept turning and looking at me in the audience as i was laughing in this comedic opera that we were doing turning and looking and glaring at me and at one point she fully turned around and looks at me and i turn and i'm just looking her back right in the eyes and i said i said carrie ann and I said, my mom started talking in my head. She said, Carrie, and I raised you better than this. You're not going to be, you're certainly not going to be rude to a little old lady, but you are going to talk to her, right? You are going to talk to her because I'm not, because I believe that part of the reason that we don't get new audiences is because when there are people who come to this space, we look at them like they're wrong for reacting the way that they organically react mm-hmm. for laughing or clapping. Like they don't know the etiquette, so they shouldn't belong there. And then we give them dirty looks and we have to get away from that. Mm. Right. So this story has a happy ending and okay. my, my, my job would be very happy that I'm sharing the story with you. <laughs> Because I went up to this woman and I said, hi, I'm Carrie Ann Otanio. I'm the vice president of engagement. I noticed that my enthusiasm is distracting you a little bit. And she said, it is, it is distracting. And I said, I absolutely understand. And I would love to offer you better seats closer to the stage. So it won't be a distraction, but I also want you to know why we react the way that we do. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, because everybody just wants to be heard. Yeah. Okay. So I said to her, Opera Delaware is an artist-led company. This is how we show our respect and our gratitude for these artists, for the work that they're doing. Um, It's a comedy. They want us to laugh. They want us to write. They want us to participate. We're part of the storytelling. And this is how we show them our respect. And she said, I thought that you show respect in the opera by being silent. I said, that's a common misconception, baby girl. (laughs) You say baby girl to her. Yes. Everyone is my friend. There are okay. no enemies. Okay. There right. are no, everybody's just using the information that they have. Our right. audience is not wrong for being protective of the space. They think that they are being protective for us. They yeah. think when they say these things um, w- that they're being protective of this art for us, we'd have to re-educate all of us. They're not bad people. They're great people. She was doing it because she loves y'all, because she wanted you to feel respected as artists. She thought I was being disrespectful. That is so, it blew my mind. I said, what if we just have conversations and assume that everybody is doing the best with the information that they have? Yeah. I'm glad that the story ended that way. I was actually, I was thinking of a different ending and um, that was, a much nicer one. <laughs> Only good stuff. Only yeah. good stuff. I mean, I just, we're, we're so quick to assume that someone is the villain in the story. Right. Yeah. Administrators don't, we're so quick to assume that boards understand what a singer's life is like, or that administrators understand what your experience is. If we can't talk to each other candidly, if we can't talk to each other, we can never grow. Hmm. We can never get any better than this. And we're going to keep shouting into our own echo chamber about like, why don't, why don't they, why doesn't it get better? You know? Yeah. But if we can talk to these people, if we can talk, if the boards and the artists and the administrators can talk and the new audiences can hear from artists like imagine how much more 
connected we would all feel and how much more meaningfully we could make art that would actually matter to people. Yeah. I, this is an audio medium, but you can't see me, listeners. I am waving my <laughs> arms Muppet style out of excitement uh, for this. So we have a crack research team here at Opera Box where we have hundreds of interns that are just dying <laughs> their bylines on the show. And we have sent them out. They've picked up a little thing that you said. You mentioned uh, in one of your interviews, the current state of opera being this, being in a renaissance of resilience. I want to hear more about that from you. What is it that we're getting right? What do you think and hope that we continue to do better? Mm -hmm. So this actually, this phrase came from my boss, uh, from Brendan Cook, who reminded me that after the plague, historically, after a plague is a renaissance, right? Mm -hmm. An artistic mm -hmm. renaissance. Yeah. Um, and in part, it's because of the... Uh, just the gratitude for being alive, uh, if we want to get into our feelings about mm -hmm, it. But, mm -hmm. but also it's a need to connect with people, right? And so I think that coming out of the pandemic, we can see more clearly why what we do matters. I yeah. certainly was, uh, when I was singing, it was to get to the next gig, Right. I mean, I feel like I made art that I loved, but I wasn't embedded in my community. I wasn't connected to my community. Yeah. Uh, I was bouncing from city to city. And that is what led to me dipping from opera because I had like a serious mental, not, let's just call it not a good time. I had not a great time with it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. Um, Oh my God, I totally just lost my train of thought. Bring me back. We're Bring talking about the renaissance of resilience. Renaissance. So at, at, the, at the end of a plague, I just, listen, I just got like caught up. I was like, oh, am I going to, am I about to talk about my mental breakdown? No, not today. It'll be another <laughs> show. We'll bring you back. We'll, we'll do it another episode. It'll be great. So the, the renaissance of resilience comes from, a, I think, a gratitude for being alive, a gratitude to be able to connect with people. Um, and I think we're all just hungry for authentic connection. Um, and I think that there's just a curiosity. I've met a lot of teenagers who are coming to the opera for the first time. Um, I've met a lot of millennials and Gen Z, mm. like people who just, it was never on their radar. And they're like, I just want to like feel, mm. I just want to like come somewhere and like feel something and experience something. And I just think like, that's the Renaissance that we've been waiting for. And we just need to capitalize on the incredible ideas that our artists have and work together. Um, because the people are hungry for it. Yeah. I, I think that there's something really inspiring to hear all this. You know, this is stuff, you know, I, I feel like all of us to some degree are 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 invested in, you know, um, espe especially me coming from, uh, I'm originally from Alabama and uh, the opera scene in Alabama is is not the same as it is in Chicago. And I always felt like I had to be the... Uh, uh, the ambassador for what felt like sort of a, a dying flame in many ways. Um, but it really is inspiring to hear um, just the, 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 the possibility of, of the, of the, of the human connection coming back when the right person sees it in the right context, when they feel welcome. And uh, I, I just want to thank you for that. I also want to pivot a little bit. Um, so you, uh, can be seen online. Obviously you're on Instagram. I believe you're on TikTok as well, but you also do videos for the, uh, inside the opera Delaware studio. 
uh, where you interview singers and uh, and and uh, that sort of thing, a sort of a hot one style. Opera cre- let's call them opera creators. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Creators. Exactly. Yeah. And and one of the things you ask in these interviews are 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 hype or gripes. Uh, well, what is that? And do you have one for us? I always do. So this <laughs> is uh, I call it my hype list or my gripe list because sometimes. Mm just want to like really celebrate all the good in life. And sometimes like we do need to shine a spotlight mm-hmm. on things that are not so hot. Right. Sounds familiar. Huh guys? No, we have, we have, we have our own segment called good call, bad call at the end of our show. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love. Um, so yeah. So I, I call myself the opera hype girl. Cause I, I just love talking about all the things that I love. Um, but then I also want to shine a spotlight if people want to gripe. So I would say for me, I'm probably going to have to hype. Um, I'm going to have to hype up the fact that conversations like this are happening in a public space um, that artists and administrators are not just talking behind closed doors or in, you know, hushed conversations because I think for too long, it's been an us and them. And I think uh, I talk to a lot of administrators who, like me, are so excited and love singers and really want like amazing things to happen. I talk to so many directors who like want to em- empower creativity. I So many composers, you know, like the whole infrastructure is there for us to empower and create together, but we're just kind of siloed and we need to be having more conversations where we talk openly. Is there a gripe to go along with the hype? Oh, you know, there's always a gripe. <laughs> there's always a gripe. <laughs> uh, before we wrap it up and let you go, Carrie on Delaware has no pro sports team. So where do you get, where do you get your sports fix? Where do you get that? That yes. sports connection. I'm a bit of a, I don't know if the term is leech. Like I just kind of latch <laughs> on to whatever, a barnacle. Let's, I'm a beautiful. Okay, barnacle, that's better. That's okay? better. Or a zebra muscle. Barnacle. Thank you. Thank you. Um, like whatever team is doing well and is nearby. <laughs> if people are going to be out I at a know. bar. I, I don't oh even God. drink, but if people are going to be out at a bar, like cheering, I want to be a part of that. So right now I live in Delaware and that means it's Philly. So like, let's go Eagles, caca. I don't know what the vibe is. Birds. <laughs> Something about it's, birds. Uh, it's fly, Eagles fly. Uh, the last the time one. they were in the Super Bowl, my cheer for them uh, was sad Tom Brady because they were playing <laughs> the Patriots and I mm. wanted Tom Brady to lose. Uh, so cir- so, cir- yes. Go birds. Circling, circling back to your uh, Traviata uh immersive experience you have was it like a poker game that you're doing like before yes. the show? oh my gosh i honestly could talk about this okay. forever just, just tell um, me a little bit about it <laughs> but, but the, uh, the poker game is uh we're gonna have 42 players we're gonna have okay. six um we're gonna have six tables yeah. we're gonna play for an hour and a half and then the winners are gonna go to a smaller right final round um thousand dollars for the winner five hundred dollars okay. second place can i can i give you this one like this is gonna really put it over the top oh my god oh. i'm ready let the winner go on stage oh. during the gambling scene <gasps> and and shove money at violetta you know like <gasps> that's actually a great idea oliver that's you genius. whore <laughs> take your money back <laughs> thank you i love this so much because i've been i just keep talking about this idea and it keeps evolving yeah to be honest with you so i'm totally going to take your advice on yeah. this i was just with friends the other night talking about how we should make it um 
uh, you know, a young professionals event that people can yeah. spend, spend like 20 bucks and come watch yeah. a, a bunch of people yeah. play poker and like have this fun. Perfect. Event. Yeah. So I just, again, I feel like by, just by talking to people, <laughs> Ideas. Well, get I was sort of kidding because it's hor- it's a horrible moment in the opera. <laughs> I would love I, it personally. I think it'd be great if you have like somebody who's like an incel, like it's really angry at women, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if it goes horribly wrong, which it undoubtedly will, you can just blame Oliver and, and I will Scott Free. Yeah, and I will yeah. unapologetically. Yeah, I will. Thanks again to Carrie Ann Otano and Opera Delaware. A couple months after we taped that, April twenty of 2023. It was episode 363. We went inside the huddle with stage director, cinematographer, and now friend of the show, Marcus Shields, to get a peek behind the curtain of what was then new to the Met, Ivo Van Hova's production of Don Giovanni. And this is what Marcus had to reveal to us behind the scenes. If you are a longtime fan of Opera Box Score, you'll also remember that Marcus Shields was our guest during the pandemic. He is uh, in the middle of rehearsing Don Giovanni uh, as an AD to Ivo Van Hova. And the run of Der Rosenkavalier, the Robert Carson production, uh, is about to close. And he was on that revival direction team. There are many other credits uh, that Marcus Shields has on his CV, and you can learn more about him at MarcusShields.com. But we don't talk about people's CVs on this show. We talk about the hot goss in opera. And Marcus, welcome back to Opera Box Score. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So just today, as uh, we're recording this interview, um, the Met published some images of the rehearsal room, or actually, I what you call that space that they're in. Um, of, uh, you know, the artists getting together for Don Giovanni, and we see Peter Matei and Federico Lombardi. Um, and it's very exciting. And there's Eva Van Hoven. There you are taking notes. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that picture yet. That's, that's been posted, but no. yeah, you're there and you're very chic, uh, all black outfit with like a legal pad and a pencil. So it's, it's great that like you are so close to the action. I'm very excited to see this production. I missed the Rosenkavalier HD because I had to work, but um, I also really wanted to see that, even though that production was the one that we saw with Renee Fleming and Alina Garancha. Uh, so, but I'm more excited to see the Evo Van Hova. What is it like mm-hmm. working with with uh, what do you call him Evo? Do you call him Van Hova, Maestro Van Hova? <laughs> no, Mr. I call him Evo. That's amazing. Uh, he's been a hero of mine for a long time. I've loved many of loved and seen many of his productions that have come to New York in the United States. And he's been, for me, one of the stars in the pantheon of artist influence for as long as I've been a director and even before. But it's interesting because I've always loved his theater work. I've never, this is the first time I've engaged with something that he's done operatically. So, and actually he's not done so much operatically. This is one of He's done some things, but it's not the it's not the go to thing that he does in his repertoire. So it's been a real privilege to be able to help him into the Met for the first time, help him get acclimated acclimated to the system, and just generally help create this production of Don Giovanni. Um, that, that's exactly what I was hoping you would say because you sort of represent the Met in this 
circumstance like he's coming in and he's making his debut and you're the person with the institutional knowledge so what are some of the things that you have to advise him on and are there considerations for hd well i mean the met is it's a it's a it's weird because when you introduced me you said ad and that's like an assistant director or something or an associate director i mean it's it stands for a bunch of different things and that job is a sort of it changes based on where you are. And at the Met, it's a completely unique job. It's not like any other house in the world, I believe. Um, and it's certainly not like any other house in America. And um, so a lot of, you know, a lot of what my job is, is helping him understand the strange, totally insane way that the Met works and the way, in the way that the Met rehearses and puts up productions for stage. And, what that often means is when you're an AD at the Met, you know, what we have on our team is about 20 or so freelance stage directors that are all really established and interesting directors in their own right that come in and have to be mediators for the the various departments in the Met, all of the technical department, all of the, sta- you know, all of the stage management department, costumes, set, etc. And we, you essentially sit in the middle of it all and lead any new team in the house through the rehearsal process onto stage. And that means a lot of times being on your feet in the room, doing all of the organizing, all of the, you know, all of the minute by minute directing, um, especially when it involves chorus, especially when it involves the large forces that always assemble when you put something on stage at the mat. So in that sense, yeah, it's it, a, a person like Evo who is, has his own theater, who, who's worked all over the world, even with all that experience comes in and, and is completely him and his team have to completely relearn how to make a piece of, of theater in the context of the Met, and uh, we sit there and do our best to help it go as smoothly as possible. You have been on a number of uh, projects that were broadcast in HD. Um, I just, I'm, I mean, I feel like that is maybe the main product that all of us exper- experience now, since people of my generation even don't listen to the radio, let alone, you know, the millennials and the Gen Zers, you know, so if they're going to have contact with the Met, it will be through HD unless they go to the house. Um, are there some things that you have been able to glean about um, the Met and its relationship to that product and where it's going? The HD specifically? Yeah. They, I mean, the HD is, it's wild because I think it is, it's interesting that it is the thing that you experience most about the Met. To, uh, to If you're just dealing with the day-to-day, it's sort of an, it's an annoying feature because very often it happens on the sixth or seventh show of a run. It's not the way you orient. You don't orient toward the HD, except in maybe the way you think about the granular details of a production. For instance, in a production that was, that wouldn't HD, you would let the scale of the house cover up some of the minor sins of like, prettiness of a prop or something like that you just let the stage be big you in and that means that you don't have to be as insane about as detail oriented about making sure that the note 
the hand prop, the paper, the letter, whatever that a person is holding in their hand has an exact set of text that is matching what would be referenced in the narrative, that kind of thing, that if a HD camera happened to to glide over while you're broadcasting a production, an audience member could easily see, you know, that it's it, you know, they may be able to see what the actual text is and and know that it's it's not exactly what's lined up with what's being said. So there's just this level of attention to detail. That's also in the glassware. It's also in making sure just like every single thing is pristine in a way that you try to do in theater, but sometimes doesn't you, you try to do in every production, but it sometimes just doesn't quite happen. Um, but by any, by any chance, did you work on this Lucia? I did. Yeah, that was, that was my, that was what the end of my last year. Yeah. That wasn't, I felt like there are so many props in that particular show and they rebuilt, they built a a, a whole city for that one. Yeah. That was like a film set. I mean, that was, again, I mean, it's, you do it for different things. I mean, theater is, theater is made to be artificial and abstract in a, in a different way than film is. And, and the HD sort of meets those two things in the middle, right? So it puts on film something that's meant to be theatrical. So you have to tilt the way you would make pieces of theater for um, for a film set. And that production of Lucia in particular was even more film-oriented because it had a lot of onstage diegetic video, I guess you would call it, like video that happened in the context of the production that was part of the design on top of the fact that it was also HD'd out into the world, which was, uh, I was, I managed the HD for that production. And that was a, a very challenging. I was wondering out. what if Nadine or Javier got sick, what would you guys do? Well, were they there, were there backup videos. We're, yeah. We, when we filmed everything we did, we did everything with their covers so okay. that it, um, so that in the, <laughs> which was this one of these things that you just never, realize that you have to figure out all the permutations of those things mm-hmm. until you end up you know end up deep deep into the tech of the production and you go somebody remembers that in the case that somebody gets sick we have to make sure that this cover does it with that principle and right. that principle does it with that cover so it's not just you know it's like it's not just two videos it's eight videos kind of thing. right right well I was noticing your fangirling, if I can use that word, about Peter Matei. Um, yeah. ha- had you heard Peter Matei before this uh, live, before this rehearsal process? Yeah, I've loved Peter f- for so long. He's been one of the absolute I- vocal idols for me forever. And it's funny because I, w- I worked with him in Don Carlo in the fall, too. And that was the first time I'd ever... I mean, I've seen him on the stage at the Met a long time, but I've never been in a rehearsal process with him and watched him go through his own workout. And that was kind of this truly fascinating experience of just watching an artist at the top of their game with the most gorgeous instrument that was every day coming into the room, working as hard as he could, thinking about singing every second, thinking about his performance thinking about how to integrate the desires of the director and the acoustical realities of the set and the needs of the maestro and he i've never seen somebody work harder and even just the other day i mean we were he had to do this hd segment as part of uh as part of the 
broadcast for Rosen Cavalier. And it was a four-minute segment where he sings De Vieni a la Finestra, which he's sung for 20 years, 30 years. And he could sing in his sleep. Every time he sings it, it is the most beautiful time you've ever heard it sung. <laughs> but it's sort of become this, you know, madness thing for him where he he's always trying to turn his voice into a cello or make it have the perfect legato or figure out how to do this element of singing more beautifully, more perfectly than he's ever done it before. And it's just this striving for greatness that is incredible to behold. It's what... It's why I love that job. I mean, it's why, you know, it's why I like being at the Met is because I love singers. I love watching singing. I'm such a, it is why I wanted to be a director is because I like the weird, insane craft of singing. And I love watching the best people in the world do it. So I'm so glad we got to, to this territory of this conversation sort of naturally, because I want to let the audience know that you trained as a singer and you still sing but i know you first as a singer and um i think you're able to speak about singing in a way that maybe some of your peers can't and i love how you talk about the rehearsal process and uh there's something that you say on your um artist statement on your website uh that really resonated with me about the experience of you know or the privilege i should say of being in the rehearsal process with some of these artists and watching this thing that never really comes out the same way in the production, but there's like this thing that happens in rehearsal that is uh, so special. And if you could just say more about that, I would love to hear, I would love the audience to hear it. Yeah. I think I had an experience. I mean, rehearsal processes are strange things and they're strange things at the Met. And I wrote that statement out of, because I was really trying to put into words something that I was feeling about my own interests as a director, as a person who puts work on stage or tries to draw people's attention to certain aspects of performance and opera. And I remember having, I've had, it have had the experience many times of sitting through a rehearsal process at the Met in the room and, and really feeling the, enveloped by the piece, enveloped by the process, watching people figure out the various elements of it, figuring out their own performances. And then you gain this really up-close relationship, sort of five feet away relationship to a group of people singing opera, especially singing grand opera, you know, sing Puccini 10 feet away from you or something like that. And then you go up into the Met and into a, you know, 3,800 seat theater this massive space and it's like all of a sudden a piece of glass is put in front of the performance where it becomes rather than you being inside of it and being amongst it it's it's like it's behind uh or underneath a cabinet that you're it's like it's in a exhibition and you're looking at it from this critical distance and all of a sudden it's the full shape and you see the flaws and you see all these things so I was, I've been thinking a lot about that and I've, it's something I've always been interested in. And I also had this experience. The first show I ever did at the Met was a Madam Butterfly. And I remember after two weeks of rehearsal, the principals had gained this, 
had done all, gone through all of the staging had it was a it's the Mingala production it's a beautiful production and it they've they'd gone through all the staging they'd built these relationships with one another and they get to the zitz probe and it happened in the orchestra room which is this sizable room down in the basement of the met and the whole orchestra's there and it's singers and um i was sitting amongst the orchestra like next to the cello and you're over there as the tenor and you just are in it in in butterfly in this way that you go and they play the piece and you feel it 360 degrees around you and it's something about opera that is so extraordinary this isn't really answering the question but it's it's all part of it's part of the mechanism of how i've been thinking about it and i mean rehearsal is this really interesting thing it's it's a hybrid between what you're actually what people are aiming for in a final product and the the messy imperfect route they take to get there and so a lot of times what you get is this combination of incredibly casual you know in the in in the course of a three-hour rehearsal or a six-hour rehearsal day you'll get this mix of profound moments of focus and concentration and channeling of something and and it's mixed with this really casual real life easy I don't know. It's the texture of the human that they are directly next to the God that they can be when they can channel their talent. Mm. And very often I've had the experience of, you know, it's 1137 AM and it's been a nightmare of a first half hour of rehearsal and everything was disorganized for the start and that this crew didn't set the room properly. And so you come in and everything's scrambled and everybody's heart rates up and it finally, things finally settle and you just get to a moment in a, in a, in a run of a sequence of the show. And all of a sudden it, one singer decides to sing their aria out and really take a moment to work something out for themselves. And nobody expects it to happen. Nobody's in the mindset of like, we're going to hear great profound artistry right now. We're going to experience beautiful music, but it's like a singer at that level in a room of that level of skill and concentration. It can just start your stop your heart. I mean, it, it, it will bring you to tears in a second. And it's this, it's that surprise of never expecting to be moved in that way. And also never expecting to see somebody tap into something so truly beautiful. And it just hits you and I've never experienced that watching a show. I mean, even in the best version of a show, I've never been able to access quite that level of special thing. And I've always had the thought that if you could get an audience to see that or experience it, somehow opera would become or classical music would become this undeniably... Um, necessary thing in that person's life you know you you would they would become addicted instantly because there's like there's nothing better in the world than experiencing that and so a lot of the way that i think about performance is about how to make that happen and i don't know how to do it i mean part of it has to do with figuring out how to treat rehearsal as the final product or try to bring people into a process and i'm certainly not the only person who's been thinking about that a lot of stage directors have been thinking about that for years but how do you get people to see exactly what that kind of thing is 
Uh, I, I, don't know if that makes sense. I honestly know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, I do wish that people, more people would get to have that experience. Um, but, but don't you, know, you think it's, it's like, it might be the thing that I'm sure that working in restaurants is, a, or, you know, there's a quality to being a part of something where, an, you know, there's a lot of artistry and a lot of high skill at the center of it that a, a, somebody who's just coming in to experience it on a night, on a single night, one off basis, just can't, you just don't have the frame of reference to really appreciate how special a certain thing is because you you don't know how good how high the level of consistency is every day and you don't know when something you know ticks up to that extra special thing i don't uh, know exactly no that's that's absolutely true I and mean, i worked in a fine dining restaurant that had tasting menus and you know we'd see the same customers week in and week out ordering the same things and you know they appreciate it but um you know like it really does there are times, like you said, like when it's everything is spot on and you never know who's going to get that experience. It could be somebody who saved all of their money, you know, to be there that one night and they receive this thing and they're the ones who end up going on Yelp or whatever and writing a review uh, of their experience that we can't even try to match that for somebody else because it was just that special for them, you know? Um. You know, we're running out of time, but I did want to hear about, since you're uh, in a relationship with a, a singer and you're watching her um, try to break through and have breakthroughs and what that experience is like and how maybe you can say something right now to those people who are singing and are waiting for the break about what what that can mean, good or bad. Yeah, I have a, I have a, a partner that is an extraordinary singer and she is... In 2019, she was invited to the Maransky Theater as part of their ensemble. And a, a job like that means something that we don't really know in the United States, but it's akin to stability and it's akin to a, a, a launching ramp into Europe. And it's a great opportunity. And as soon as she got there, you know, it's a massive challenge to move from from new york to russia without speaking the language and it's it's quite an intimidating thing and as soon as she got there about two months in um the war and you can't re the war um broke out and she had to flee and of course um there are much more serious things to think about in that situation than the fate of one opera singer but um even though she had that opportunity, you know, leaving that job meant that all of a sudden she had no work for a year or she had to scramble as fast as she could. And she was able to to quickly put things together. But essentially, she has spent the last year and a half trying as hard as she can to make a break into something else to get another kind of job like that. And they are it is very, very hard to to strike that again and the thing that i've learned through observation the thing that she's learned through experience that we have learned through experience together has something to do with the really dry feeling the 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 message that i think gets said a lot when you set out on a career like this that has to do with you should only do it if you're really truly and have to do it because it's super hard and it's 
and there's no there's there's no you no one deserves it you know no one's entitled to it and so if you want it you have to stop feeling like somebody's going to give it to you and you have to by hook or by crook get out there and make it happen for yourself and a lot of that means that for instance she didn't she needed to get in front of so many different people to sing for them it meant she had to fly to europe multiple times it meant she had to to reverse engineer uh general directors email addresses based on the formula that one person from their uh admin team you know based on the email formula and just cold emailing as many people it just has to do with a tenacity and a willingness to get in front mixed with an insane dedication to being as good as you can possibly be and then you'll fail a hundred times and then maybe something <laughs> will happen and i think it, it just has to do with I've, I've watched her do that and i've watched her now get another job that means that she's in a fast contract and and going over to sing and i think it's it's a beautiful thing to watch it happen but it it happened not because she's she was talented from the get. She's always been good. But the thing that made her have the incredible opportunity twice is this n- incredible dedication and willingness to do this really unpleasant amount of work. <laughs> well, in our last few moments together, um, I'll say that the Met has had some PR things to deal with in the past couple of months, uh, namely with Anna's Anna Dutrepko winning that um, settlement uh, with Angela Giorgio's, uh, you know, interview with Zachary Wolf, followed by her cancellation of her return, and then the whole oh, Sonia Yoncheva and Norma, and then the Gunter Groisbach yeah. and the Ildar's Bratzikov. Uh, are there any one of those stories that you feel comfortable just like? pulling back the curtain and sharing what it's like on the inside is the gunter story about that he cursed on on live television oh no i just i thought it was about like him not coming back like he oh uh, he was reluctant to get a vaccine oh is that what it is no we don't know just there was a statement that was out there that's like he is not coming back in the near future you know oh Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I think that was because he just wasn't slated to be on the roster. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I think that he is coming back. Um, he certainly has done. He just did double Lowengrin and uh, Baron Ox, so yeah. he's certainly been around a lot. And he did Don Carlo in the fall. I like Gunter a lot. He's a great guy. Um, I so do I. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, let me think. Yeah, there's some. I mean. All of those stories are probably what you expect them to be. I think the Angela Giorgio thing was really funny because right as we were starting, Giovanni, my colleague, uh, Sarah Myers, was dire- was actually directing. She's mentioned in the New York Times article rather humorously, but she was directing Angela, getting her into this Tosca production. She was doing two performances in the midst of an ongoing run, which is never a very... Uh, it's never a position that puts you on stage with a lot of experience. You sort of have to slot right in and go. But she came in and took up maximum amount of space. I mean, like made <laughs> carpenters rebuild parts of the set, changed the way the jump happened. It was, I mean, it was really, it was wild to hear the stories coming out of of that room. 
and and she also showed up without any interest of doing the production that you know the Met has purchased and the Met has puts on and she showed up and did her own staging and <laughs> you know and created this massive fuss and then the night before she and she made the New York the New York Times attended you know, Zachary Wolf sat in the rehearsal room for these nightmare rehearsals where, you know, we as the the spirits of the Met, us stage directors who make this stuff happen, you know, we're put in a strange position with one of these, these super divas where, you know, you, you, you are trying to accommodate the process of many different people. You're trying to accommodate the process of a conductor. Ma- a, a person like Matthew Polanzani and Zelko Lucic, who are there as well, you know, these very fancy professionals. And meanwhile, this other element comes in and is sort of a Tas- Tasmanian, you know, s- spinning force. Yes. Um, <laughs> Secret and- police, by the way. What's that? Secret police. Oh, yeah. Maybe you, you didn't hear that story. Uh, what is the story? Um, when she was a teenager, uh, there's uh, a story out there that she was uh, like spying. <laughs> she oh. was like working for like Holy the se- the Romanian secret police. So, well, the the real like juice of it was that that it came out on a Friday. She was supposed to do a Saturday matinee, and the New York Times article came out at six p.m. on a Friday. Yeah, and my colleague was you know head in hand. You know, just couldn't believe that they'd they really sort of faith that Zachary Wolf faithfully described the experience in the rehearsal room. And Peter Gelb was in, in that story, not saying the most wonderful things. It was just a very wild little (laughs) article. And then at six Oh five, she cancels. And so it it really felt personal. Like it really, it felt like a stick in the eye and maybe she had COVID. Maybe she didn't. Who knows? I mean, uh, it doesn't matter, but it, it was it was a an episode in everybody's life. It was like a <laughs> little chapter that in the 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 book of twenty the twenty twenty three season. It will you know you'll flip past it and have a chuckle. Well, the twenty twenty three season continues with Don Giovanni, which opens in May, uh, directed by Ivo Van Hova, with assistance from many people, but assistance from our guest Marcus Shields. Thank you for coming back to Opera Box Score. You got it. Thank you for having me. E vieni alla finestra, o mio tesoro, e vieni a consolare il pianto mio. Se Thanks a bunch, Marcus, for hanging out with us in spring of last year. And lastly, June 22nd of 2023 is episode 371. I was in Santa Fe. Oliver, of course, would be in Santa Fe a 
a few weeks later that same summer, and I got to go inside the huddle with David Alden. The Olivier Award-winning stage director was creating a new production of The Flying Dutchman for Santa Fe, and there I was backstage getting 20 minutes with one of my most favorite directors. Here's how he talked about Dutchman and, of course, at that time, the future of English National Opera, which was unknown. You've just come off a rehearsal with the chorus. Thanks so much for taking the time to do sure. this. You must be exhausted. Chorus rehearsal no, is always... I'm excited. <laughs> You're excited. It's a thrill. Um, just to uh, put your work in context yeah. for our listeners, of course, you have a long association with English National Opera yes. and the Bavarian State Opera yes. and, of course, Santa Fe yes. as well. Um, New York City-born, live in the UK. But how did you transition from this country into Europe in your well, career? Well, I mean, I started my career in, in regional companies all around the USA. And then I think it was around 1976. I started like in 1971, just when I got out of college, started working in America. Then, but I always had my eye on Europe because there's a, there was a different, I mean, there was a revolution that was going on beginning in the 70s, uh, upper production. Opera production was starting to, to, to become more experimental, more dangerous, more confronting these wonderful old operas and pulling out the new stuff and, and denouncing the bad old ways of the world, you know, and, and not just taking the whole thing as a beautiful, sumptuous visual joy, but really getting into the nitty-gritty of these pieces. And it was really happening, it started in Europe, really. There's always been a, a difference of in aesthetic between America and Europe, anyway. I mean, America still has a certain lo Disney-esque love of, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas in Europe, in the 70s, we, people were getting, it was more re revolutionary and dangerous, and people were digging in. And I knew that, that, that it was happening, so I started to visit Europe in the mid-70s to check it out, and I learned a lot, mostly in Germany. That was the sort of uh, hotbed of innovation and uh, art, mod important modern artists, painters, designers were moving into the, the theater and opera and it was becoming very very adventurous and it was the, the whole opera style was cracking wide open and new, new things were happening and I started to sneak around Germany mostly Berlin and <laughs> Munich and you know all around there and check out what was going on it made a big impression on me and I from then on really I was oriented more for staying in Europe but I kept working in both you know in both continents and then I started to uh, to work in England, and that really became my base of operations. I worked at the Scottish Opera first, and then I started to work at the English National Opera, which at the mo that time was also bringing this new energy and this new ways of doing opera to the UK, and I became one of the mainstays of that at the ENO, the English National Opera. That lasted a good long time, and then meanwhile I was working in more and more in Europe as well, in Germany and in France and all over the place, and, in, and a lot in Israel as well. I really was covering, and I have a twin brother who's also an opera director. Mm -hmm. He sort of Christopher Alden. Christopher Alden. He sort who's also directed here in the past. He kind of took America as his place, and I kind of took Europe. But then, of course, we started to sneak onto each other's territories eventually, and we shared, shared, and reasonably well. And you've co-directed? No, we one time 
we were doing the three Mozart da Ponte operas with Daniel Barenboim and the Chicago Symphony in their sort of a in their in their concert hall, but it was staged. The plan was I was going to do Don Giovanni and my brother was going to do Figaro. We were going to share Cosi Fan Tutte together, and we did the first day together, and that was it. <laughs> bad cop, bad cop. No, 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 no. So uh, I graciously let him do the Cosi Fan Tutte himself because he had done it more recently than I had somewhere else. Staying in England for just one moment, yes. of course, English National Opera has seen huge cuts because yes. of the Arts Council England. Yes. What is your opinion on the present and the future? It's a, it's a horror. The ENO, there's always been a class struggle in England between the people with all the money who control everything. And then the ENO was created in the 50s as the people's opera. It was all, Everything was to be sung in English. It was cheaper to go to see it. You know, people were encouraged to come even though opera you know had a pretty bad reputation for being snooty and you had to get dressed up and the ENO was starting to break that and the ENO became very successful and really was rivaling Covent Garden the Royal Opera House which was the big theater that the, all the the, the the rich people and the business people and then the expense accounts and the governmental figures went to but but ENO started so there was always a rivalry I mean rivalry is healthy on one level of course in the arts it's good to have two wonderful companies rivaling each other in the same city it's very cool but but it but the, you know always was fighting against this in this this class war this eternal in England for some reason and eventually over the years it was very successful but then it people really started to man, maneuver the grants and the money less and less for the you know it was struggling more and more and then it's reached a terrible point last season when when the arts council made this decision that the ENO they had this thing called leveling up in the UK which means they're trying to become less London centric and they're trying to move stuff around the country which is you know a good idea theoretically but they decreed to the ENO that the ENO had to almost immediately pick up and move to some unnamed city in the north and pick up business like overnight which you can't do this was five six seven hundred people in the at the ENO completely displaced overnight supposedly and it just didn't happen so there was a big outcry from the company but also from you know arts lovers and opera lovers and people who for years had been going to the ENO and had you know it had and the ENO was it was everything was really good they they ticked all the boxes they were they it became very there were the reach out to to audiences, new audiences was fantastic. There were lots of free seats given away to young people to try and get them into the, the world of opera, and it was working. And there was uh, diversity, a lot of a, a lot of. There was a real sense of black people being pulled pulled in, all races being pulled in, and starting to level that you know those inequalities out. It was all brilliant, but then all of a sudden the Arts Council decreed you that they had to pick up sticks and move north. And they essentially came up with a short list of cities that yeah, you know had. Mean, it, it, was, they, it was like picking a World Cup's host city or the Olympics. But they had they just did it overnight, and people on the Arts Council are who didn't really understand the, the, the sort of large nature of the opera business and how it's it's an ecosystem opera. You know, young people, young singers are trained and then they're brought into the company to do smaller roles. And I mean, it's an ecosystem. And if you just grab away one of the main 
components of this ecosystem. It's going to, how is this? None of this was thought through. And this ridiculous decree that they had to leave right away. People, there was a lot of protest then. And then the Arts Council came back some months later and said, okay, we're going to fund the next season normally. And then after that, we're going to give you money every year to be developed. At least now they've been given a few years to develop the new, you know, story and find a new the proper new home to go to and so that's on that's on the way now but there's still like the sort of Damocles over the ENO hanging over it and it's it's not a good situation it's a bad situation Santa Fe of course is its own ecosystem yes. you first directed here Turn of the Screw 1983 right. five shows after yeah. that most recently Six, Yennefer seven seven, seven? I think so. I think this is my eighth show now wow yeah. most recently 2019 that's right I yes, believe here we are, Wagner, yeah. Flying Dutchman. What makes Santa Fe so special to you? You know, I, I first came to work here as an assistant director in like 1972. I was very young, of course, as you know, I won't tell you how young. But yeah, and I did a couple, three years, and then I worked other places, and I came back, and from the first time I touched down in this place, this place is magic. I mean, this is the most gorgeous place to work in the summer, and the standard here has always been incredibly high for singers, discovering new singers, bringing some singers from Europe over for the first time, and then the whole apprentice program with bringing all these young people, the t- most talented young people really in the country. I mean, it's like, it's 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 really sort of paradise on some levels, and the beauty, just the beauty of the whole place, and the, the joy of that. I mean, it's like no other company in the world. D- does it make you think of Glyndebourne at all? Yeah, similar to Glyndebourne. Glyndebourne is all in the, the theater is entirely in, in do- indoors. That's the difference here. It's this incredible nature that you have, and these, you know, the storms which sometimes blow through the productions very often extremely well timed for the <laughs> opera. You know, the commendatory appears from the dead and ge- denounces Don Giovanni, and the thunder goes. <laughs> it's happened a lot. It's or, very bizarre. The famous uh, Dr. Atomic about the, the Los Alamos and the bomb. And in the second act, when they were trying to set the bomb off, it started to rain and they had to keep waiting in this based on the histori- history. And that there was a fantastic storm in the second act. I was there just as it was incredible. It was incredibly well timed. It was amazing. I hope you get lucky for some yeah, uh, yeah. thunderstorms for your Dutchman. There's some good places in this opera where you, we could use help from nature. But it does pose its own challenges. I'm from Chicago, and I've been gasping for air yes. the last week yes, that right. I've been right. here. Um, yeah, the, the singers take... I mean, it, it varies for the different singers. Some people don't feel it. Some people st- take a breath to sing, and then they go, oh, wait a minute, hold everything. And it takes, a, you know, some people can take a week. Some people can take two weeks. It depends. But it's, everyone, eventually, you, you conquered enough to do your job. Yeah. What about designing for this open-air space? It's, it's very different, yeah. I mean, the stage is configured in a very unusual way in that there's no flying. Everything, there's a ceiling over the whole stage to protect people in the from the weather i guess and but the sides are all open so um you just want designs very specially for this theater it's in a way it's more like the set sets generally they have to conform within this all there's already this this sort of architectural structure tension and movement in the building itself so the sets somehow it's like installations in a way within this other big piece of sculpture and one has to be you know you, you, everyone does it differently but it but it influences design quite a bit 
Let's talk about the production itself then. Nicholas yeah. Brownlee as the yeah. Dutchman, Elsa van de Hever, Zenta, Morris Robinson, Daland. What is your point of view on this specific production? Well, this the story of the Flying Dutchman. I mean, it's a you know, it's a ghost story. It's like a myth. It's like a bizarre fairy tale, but it has a lot of modern resonances if you start to think of it. I mean, this man, this incredible industrialist. For me, he's sort of like a nightmare Elon Musk. He's building up this gigantic industry on, on the sea and he's trawling through the waters and he's, you know, how you see these on the, the seas and the oceans now, these gigantic barges with containers. I mean, it's a bit like that, but it's more of a nightmare. It's like he's piling up the containers and, and, and trawling through the oceans and polluting, slowly polluting the waters and He's suffering terribly because he's under a curse. He can't stop. But it's also, one has the sense this is, this is a capitalism running slowly rampant over the world and so polluting things. And people are being, and it's, it's like the whole world is becoming a machine. And the people in, in, in the, the sailors on Dalan's ship and then the women who work back on the land while the, the men are off at sea, everyone is like being drawn into this horrible machine. This capitalistic machine, and they're slightly—they're becoming dehumanized, and then they're becoming enslaved, really. And somehow, Senta, the girl who has been obsessed by this ghost story since her childhood, and she dreams herself up into this thing in which he—he he appears to her. I mean, he really does come on shore, and and he finds the one one woman potentially to save him from this eternal curse of. Of, of sailing, that's that's the deal with God. If he can find a woman faithful unto death, then he will be released from from the curse. But he's been already had many women, and they've all, at least in his opinion, been unfaith turned on him before they were married and were unfaithful. And he finally finds this girl, and in, in a way, this girl, she's not like everybody else. She's fighting the machine. She's on her own. She's kind of half crazy but she's also really brilliant and, and educated and she starts to somehow her obsession with this guy is also her way of trying to release the world from this horrible curse as well as just this one industrial so it's got this modern edge I wouldn't say it's immoral but it's got this modern take on it uh, we're backstage after a course rehearsal for Act 3. Yes. Um, when you're approaching a rehearsal, this is from one director to another, yep. approaching a rehearsal specifically with the chorus, what are you thinking? How are you preparing and how are you executing? Well, I mean, I've planned it all carefully in advance. I know the score and the text completely better than anybody else, often including the conductor, because I'm very well prepared. And I come in knowing what it's going to be, but on the other hand, the most exciting thing in a rehearsal is you can, if you have it in the back of your head, but then you can just take what people are giving you and go with that and somehow, you know, sometimes you can, I can be completely surprised and come up with something entirely new, but it's chemistry between people. That's what rehearsal is, really. That's the, the mystery and the real excitement of it, just planning it and then doing it. Yeah, it's not so interesting. Planning it and then throwing it all away as you're doing it and doing something better with the help of, you know, all the people, the, the performers, the conductor, the music, music staff, the technical staff. It's this gigantic synergy between these people. That's the great thrill of it for me. In watching the rehearsal this afternoon, 
your work is so physical. Yeah. I, I'm going to say choreography. Yeah. As, as, virtually as a word. choreographic. Yeah. I mean, it's all about the relationship with the score, with my relationship with the music. It's all the whole thing is based on that. Sometimes it's a, it appears to be against the music or whatever, but it's always that's the ultimate thing which is controlling me and I have a great collaborator who really is a choreographer Maxine who travels with me and does a lot of shows with me so again yeah but it's, it's all about that yeah. the overture to Flying Dutchman is one of the most famous pieces of yeah. music in the repertoire yes. uh, how do you approach that as a director do you leave it alone do you well, stage pr- normally in a, in a normal indoor theater I'm not sure because this is the first time I've done it. But now, but that since we're starting, and it's still light outside, and it's a ten-minute overture, I feel that I have to do a visu- make a visual event during the overture. Hopefully, not so much that it. I still want people to be focused on the narrative of the music, but I'm given a certain visual storyline to it just because there we are. You can't. There's no curtain here. You know. You're just there. You are, and the show starts. I've never done an opera here with a 10-minute overture. I've always done, you know, preludes, this and that, where you can, where the action is clear. But this time, I'm, it's more of a pushing me more in this direction. As we wrap up our time together, we are a podcast that talks about the overlap between sports and opera. Morris Robinson, of course, yes. comes to mind, a former 1AA football yes, player. Exactly. Yes. Um, do you have a sports team that you follow? No. Did you ever play sports when you were a child in high school? Or? Well, I, well, I did when I was younger, yeah. But no, I've always been into, I've been obsessed by music, theater, and that's my sport. You know, really, I've, I'm, I've, I would say I've had blinders on because I'm aware of everything that's going on because that's part of the thing. That's a part of, that's what things like, everything should seep into a production, I think, even if it's unconscious. But no, my sport is my sport, yes. Thanks to David Alden and the fantastic team at Santa Fe Opera for making that happen. No good calls or bad calls this week. We're just getting things going. 2024 is going to be a fantastic year for the show. I guarantee it. So that is it for this week's special edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. As always, make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify or Apple included get your voice heard and find links to stuff we talk about at our website it's operaboxscore.com and of course that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are kick off 2024 right by donating to the obs just go to the support the team page as always your announcer is norm waddell your creative consultant is oliver camacho and your audio editor is weston williams for my co-hosts matt cummings and ashley hardgrave I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera whenever you can through this new year. We are back with an all-new show on Thursday, January 11. And of always, you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more you-know-what. Join us. <laughs>